So maybe you can go through those three points and tell us uh, where, where we stand, on starting with Coral Gables. Sure. So, uh, you know, if, if, uh, I, I know I've talked about this case before on the show, but uh, right now we have a lawsuit against the city of Coral Gables, Florida, for their use of automatic license plate reading cameras. And, you know, the sort of the, the short version is that the city has set up these cameras um, all around the city, and they take a picture of every car that drives by. And they take a picture of the license plate, they record it, and then they store it in a computer system for three years. And what that allows them to do is they can take, um, you know, anybody's name or their license number, and they can go back in the system and basically see everywhere that car has been on the public roads in the city for a three-year period. And, you know, my organization, we, we don't like government being involved in a lot of different things, and we certainly are, are very concerned about privacy issues. So we, we sued the city, and we also sued a, a couple of law, federal, uh, state law enforcement agencies that had issued guidelines to basically allow this kind of thing to happen. And, you know, predictably, the other side, they moved to dismiss. So they asked the judge to dismiss the case, and their arguments basically were, uh, you know, tough. There's, there's nothing there's nothing in the federal constitution, there's nothing in the state constitution that stops us from doing this. We can follow people around all we want, we can take as many pictures of them as, as we want in public, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. And we're very excited because our judge, uh, you know, saw through that, and she dismissed, or she denied all the motions to dismiss, and, and basically what she said is, no, this case can go forward. It's... Uh, it may not be okay, and, and we need to find out exactly what the city's doing, what kind of information they're gathering, what they're doing with it, and um, you know. And, and so we're moving into that stage of the case, but we're we're very excited about it, and we're you know we're optimistic that we're going to be able to put a stop to this system. What kind of discovery are you thinking that you're going to be able to get? Well, you know, one of the big questions we had going into this case is, you know, we knew they were using this, this computer system, uh, you know, these, these cameras. We don't know what kind of information they're really gathering and what they're doing with it. So, you know, we know the rough outline. They're taking all these pictures and they're storing them for three years. But I don't know how many people that affects. I mean... You know, there are estimates that it's in the tens of millions of images, but I don't really know exactly what that is. So we hope to get that information. Okay. And the big question we have is, what do they do with it? I mean, I, I know they put it in a computer system. I know they share it with certain law enforcement agencies. But beyond that, I don't know. I mean, we've heard, you know, rumors and, and people speculated that maybe the private company that runs these cameras stores the data, maybe they sell it, maybe they use it for some other reason, uh, maybe they shall share it with additional law enforcement, maybe they sell it to law enforcement, we don't know. And it's something that we're very concerned about and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of. Well, they can certainly use it to blackmail some private citizens, for example. If, if the citizen has a dispute with the city on something, uh, they could say, oh, but you are here or there. Uh, you know. That's certainly a concern. And, and another concern we have is, you know, what kind of controls are they doing to make sure this data doesn't get out to people who have no business having it? I mean, you know, we've heard lots of... Uh, 
ransomware attacks on small municipalities where you know hackers right. take all the data from a, a municipality and they they ransom it back and I don't know what kind of protections the city has to keep something like that from happening. Or it may have happened already. Well, in, in our city, in our city, it happened. Keep his game. game. You think right. it's? Uh, you think it was via? <laughs> that'd be ironic because they pushed so hard for it here. It'd be it'd be ironic that the hack came through our own red light cameras. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, that's just a tremendous amount of information about people and and what they're up to and where they go, who they're friends with. And, and, you know, I, I think we're really concerned that somebody could get a hold of it. They could, you know, who knows what they could do with it. I mean, the other thing that we're always concerned about is I don't know how these people are trained who are operating the system. And, you know, I, I used to be a prosecutor. So, you know, I used to work very closely with law enforcement. And, you know, one of the things we saw, unfortunately, was people would get access to people's criminal records and even though they weren't supposed to, they'd always run, you know, criminal history of their, their, uh, you know, their kid's boyfriend or their their cousin or something like that. And and that information would get out. And I have no uh, guarantees that the city's not doing stuff stuff like this, or their employers aren't. How about you know, political? Yeah, a political how about a political opponents? Right, people that are bugging the city, like some of the gadflies that are complaining to city council about, for example, this city is kind of is a gun grabber. The mayor in particular right. is known as a gun grabber. So he could uh, oppose or try to blackmail some of the uh, citizens that are complaining. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the whole point of this is, you know, this is also unnecessary, at least from my perspective. You know, the, the, the city has no business gathering this information. I think there's a lot of problems. What are they going to do with it? Who are they going to share with it? But, you know, the big question that we've always had is, what's the point of all this? Why do they think they want this information? And the city's always kind of vaguely told us, oh, well, we think it'll help solve crime. And, you know, I'm very curious. Can you point to a specific crime? You know, they certainly haven't done that yet. And and now's the time. You know, we're, we're in discovery now, and, and this is the city's opportunity to come forward with some kind of evidence that this has ever done anything to help anybody. Okay, and, so and mm, I'm go ahead. I'm skeptical of that. Well, let me ask you a really uh, terrible question that I have to ask you. What about sure. the judge? Where does the judge come? I mean, how? Uh, it seems like you got a favorable judge. I mean, but judges these days are all over the place. Uh, what do you do? You know the background on this judge? Well, you know, I've uh, I've appeared in front of this judge on this case, and I can tell you that she was very respectful to all the okay. litigants. She she gave she listened to our arguments, and um, from my understanding of her professional background, she's a you know she's been a judge a long time. She doesn't seem particularly partisan. Okay, good. And you know, this is exactly why we have you know different branches of government and why we have a judiciary because you know. The, the city is a political entity, and right. they're doing things that I don't think they're supposed to. And that's why, you know, it, it's it's so important that groups like mine come in and we go and take them to court and, and sue them and, and get judges to stop what they're up to because it's not it's not lawful. Okay, oh. now, on a red light camera, why isn't it unconstitutional simply because a car can't commit a violation, only a driver can? These aren't red light cameras, though. They're everything. And the red light cameras don't... Can't prove that I was driving the car. I could have given it to my daughter. I could have lent it out, and and the person I lent it out to ran the stoplight. 
Why should I pay for someone else's ticket? I, ne I don't understand why that's never been heard in court. Well, and so that's a little bit of a different issue. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm personally very skeptical of red light cameras for that reason that you're talking about is, you know, you, you have a traffic offense that's associated with a car, not a person. And, and that I think is, is concerning. Uh, this lawsuit deals not with red light cameras, but it deals with, with license plate reading cameras, which are a little bit different. And the biggest difference is uh, they record an image of your car when you go by, by the camera, no matter what. You don't have to commit a moving violation. You don't have to be speeding. It's just every single car that goes by them. Yes, we have one in our little uh, enclave. In Cuba Scan, there's a little enclave called Mashta Island. And we had a break in and while the uh, the owners were living, um, sorry, while the owners were sleeping, we've had uh, car theft. There's about 65 homes in this enclave called Mashta Island, and we put we put uh, a card reader camera on our bridge to to monitor everybody going in and out. And it's exactly what's happened. There's others who actually live there realize they've just persecuted themselves. Their, right. Their invade their privacy has been invaded. Uh, they're reading there. Uh, we're the ones that go in and out all the time. So. You know, whatever parking ticket you don't have, you're getting pulled over, whatever. I, I don't know if, you, if you're suspended for a failure to pay a traffic fine, which is possible because so many people travel and stuff. Uh, you know, you yourself have just uh, made life difficult for yourself because as soon as you leave the island or come into the island, you have a cop on your butt right away. Right. Well, and, and another thing that we're really concerned about is, you know, there are lots and lots of these cameras popping up all over Florida. It seems like every community in the in the state is, you know, every other week that there's a new community, they, they set up the system, and they're networking all together. And, you know, we have a, a local problem with Coral Gables, but pretty soon in the next year or two, uh, it's going to be a statewide problem. And before, you know, and not that too long after that, I'm, I'm worried it's going to be a nationwide problem. And so, it probably already is. That's a, are your um uh, your standing in the case is uh what particular angle other than Raul Mas is the plaintiff. He's the plaintiff, so he just feels like it's an in, uh, invasion yeah, of privacy. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. And, you know, our our client, he he's lived in Coral Gables for years and he doesn't like it. I mean, he hasn't done anything wrong and he's being treated like a criminal in his own in his own town. And, you know, it's, it's just not appropriate. And so he doesn't like it. We don't like it. We don't think it's lawful, and we're trying to stop it. Okay. Now, uh, let me ask you to, to go up a little bit more in terms of looking at the, the perspective on this issue. And uh, what, what do you think? Do you think that the courts and litigators like yourselves and the others in the uh, uh, you know, uh, public interest uh, from the conservative point of view can really put... Uh, a uh, rein in the administrative state uh, well, through, I, through the courts. You hope so? Mm? You <laughs> that's, hope so? That, that's the goal. I mean, you know, my group, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, you know, we're relatively new. Right. And we were founded on that idea that it's really going to take groups like us to push back and say, you know, the government has gotten too big, administrative agencies have gotten too big, they've taken too much power. It's not it's not appropriate and it's not lawful and somebody has to push back and stop it. Because I think there's a lot of groups, you know, historically who you think of who were, you know, 
supposed to protect civil liberties. Right. They've gone over to the progressive side completely. Right. They've gone over to the progressive side, and they've let this happen, and they, they don't see anything wrong with it. And so, you know, right. groups like mine, we're trying to step in and, and fill that, that role. And, you know, we've had a lot of success. You know, we've been able to invalidate, you know, individual administrative actions, but I think what really our philosophy is, we're trying to take tools away from right. the administrative state. Because for a long time, people weren't challenging what the government was up to. People weren't pushing back, and the courts, unfortunately, gave agencies a pass. Right. And they've, you know, set up all these these doctrines, these judicial philosophies that have let administrative agencies go wild. And what we're doing now is we're trying to take those tools away. Okay, so and one of those tools is this so-called deference. And I know that in that Florida, one, yes. yeah, the, in Florida, I think there was a, uh, a, a constitutional amendment passed in November of 18 that uh, took that away from, uh, from the administrative agencies in terms of courts deferring. Is that? Do you remember that? I think you guys may have yeah, been involved that, in that. That's absolutely right. And, and Florida has really been a leader on that. And that, you know, there have been a handful of other uh, states that have done that. And they've said, at least for our state administrative agencies, we're not going to defer to them. And and what that means basically is, you know, their courts for a long time have said that administrative agencies can interpret the law, and judges have to have to defer to their interpretation. They have to follow that right. interpretation of the law, even if it's not right, even if the judge wouldn't come up with that same interpretation of the law. And it, it's a way that agencies have been able to take away power from the judiciary and you know, really change what the law means and how the law works. Yeah, it's really an abdication by Absolutely. the judiciary to these so-called experts. Right. Um, and, that, and that's the theory, is that, oh, well, these agencies, they know, they know better than right. us. They know better than judges. And, and that's, that's not the way it works. I mean, right. judges know how to interpret the law. That's what they do. And they can't put that off on an agency, because an agency is, is a government actor, and it's trying to take power for itself. Um, and so there's been a lot of success at the state level, and we're very excited about that. But unfortunately, at the federal level, you know, deference is, is still a way of life. And so one of the things that we've been doing is we've been fighting against certain applications of deference. Um, one thing that's been really troubling to us is even in criminal cases, you have it, you have situations where judges are allowing prosecutors, the agencies that are prosecuting violations of the law, to Deference. They're giving them deference to their interpretations of what the law means. And you have situations where prosecutors are bringing a case and they're saying, well, we think this, this is, is a, a good case because we've interpreted the law in this way. And judges are saying, okay, we'll defer to you. That's terrible because we've had several. Focus for us. We've had a couple of callers recently uh, about prosecutorial overreach. And prosecutorial, really, impunity. Like, they don't care, and and they're running the show. And I think uh, it's time for the for the judges at the federal and the state level to rein them in. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we're really trying to do is we're, we're trying to reach out to the judges and, ex- and explain that, you know, this is not, even though you've been doing this for a long time, it's not okay. And, you know, judges are in a, in a 
unique situation because on the one hand, judges are required by you know the doctrine of stare decisis. They're supposed to follow yeah the precedents. Yeah, legal precedents. At the same time, judges take an oath to uphold the Constitution, right. and we're asking judges to you know do their duty under the Constitution, follow their oath, and you know either you know if they're not willing to to get rid of deference, and they should recuse themselves. Well, isn't uh, isn't Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas uh, stating that, you know, the lower courts can use uh, legal precedents to hear their cases, but the Supreme Court doesn't have to. They only have to adhere to the Constitution. Right. And that, I mean, that's that's the ultimate goal, is, is to con- convince the Supreme Court to do away with these doctrines. And, you know, fortunately, we have a, a, a couple of friends. You know, Justice Gorsuch is a very strong critic of deference. Uh, he's written a lot about it. He's he's had some very, you know, positive things. You know, he, he understands the issue. And we're looking at him and, and other members of the court, and, and hopefully, you know, in the not-too-distant future, there will be even more members of the court who agree with him. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can have some really profound changes in the law. Yeah, uh, what's most profound is the age of the two justices thus far so that they can actually make an impact on the court by being there 10, 20 years. That, that's absolutely right. And, you know, we've, for for people like like me, you know, in, in my space, you know, we can see the, the impact that Justice Gorsuch has had on the court in administrative law in just a few years. And there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, his impact will be you know, extremely important in the in the years to come. What about Kavanaugh? And, well, and we're, we're waiting to see on, okay. on Justice Kavanaugh. You know, okay. He's he's had some opportunities. I you know he's not he's not really taken the opportunities that we'd like to see him take, but right. he's new, and, and we're hoping that Justice Gorsuch's influence will rub off on him. Good. Yeah, well, he actually has to be de- detoxified after his hearings for approval. Right. And that's only human. He's probably uh, what they would call uh, judge shy or gun shy yep. to make really and, big statements. Uh, he's and probably you may, you may absolutely be right about that. I mean, it, you know, he's he's definitely um, he hasn't rocked the boat since he's been on the court. And, well, yeah, we and, had we had uh, Miguel Estrada from Gibson Dunn was down here at the Federalist Society giving a review of the term of the Supreme Court coming up and what was done last. He comes down here every year. For about six or seven years in a row, and basically, from what I got from him is that the court has been treading carefully and not tr- not not taking on very controversial issues, and, and in effect, so in effect, the Kavanaugh opposition had had an effect in that the the court is being you know a little bit more neutered. Well, a little bit, yeah. So hopefully, you're right. Hopefully, they will uh, free up as the time passes. Right. And I, I think that's probably a, a. I think I agree with that observation. Well, thank you very much for your call, and uh, we look forward to hearing you again thank and again you, and again and again. Keep in touch. Thank you guys uh, again for having me, and, and uh, wish you guys the best. Thank you. So you can always uh, listen to these recordings on wsqfradio.com forward slash live after our interviews, is usually the following day, because, you know. We are a community-based radio program, and we don't have a large staff, even though I, I thought, am large. I thought you had uh, dozens and dozens of proofreaders and editors. Or and I only like have one editor out of five that okay. I really am proud of.
for his resilience and patience. Okay. But other than that, uh, and you know, co-hosts included, they you know they're just not up to my speed because not only am I the best looking fat guy, but I'm also the greatest concrete conservative Absolutely. ever to be found. Yep. I told some friends of mine the other day I was also the best quarterback in my school's history to go two and seven. That could be. You know, with only two wins and seven losses, I still I look, I look great the whole time. So who's our next caller? Uh, well, Ari Bargill from uh, Institute for Justice is going to be calling in. And he's they've been involved in – their Institute for Justice is similar to the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Alliance. And they have been involved in similar litigation, holding back the administrative state – uh, especially with respect to uh, takings uh, cases and misuse of eminent domain. That seems to be the big uh, issue for them. But uh, Ari has a new uh, angle, which is taxation by citation, where oh, that could be interesting. municipalities uh, will tax you by citing, issuing citations. Uh, he's also been involved, they've been involved with a case in near Tampa where uh, a guy got a, a bill for like $20,000 for uh, not mowing his grass. Oh, yeah, I remember this one. interview. And there yes, was a recent case absolutely. where somebody in Michigan owed like $8 in real estate taxes, and the county uh, repossessed his home and sold it and kept the uh, excess. Kept the profits. Yes, absolutely. So that seems to be pretty out of out of control. So, really, I think the the real threat or a big threat to the to our liberty today is the excesses of the administrative state. They're running out of control. They were not in the federal constitution. I don't think they were in most state constitutions. But there's this real um, people have this expectation that the most important thing about government is that they be experts, and they think that if we have these expert technocrats somehow they're going to produce better than good, you and I good governance and really that's that's a platonic view that hasn't worked in 2000 isn't there a principle years. isn't there a principle in business where eventually uh, people can't be promoted any the Peter principle the yes, Peter principle so that applies but, to government but, but the, so I would say the founding fathers thought that the most important issue and thing quality to look for in government was not technical expertise but accountability and in particular, you want people accountable to or people in government accountable to the people who uh, put why them in sh- why power. Should, why should they? They got a cushy job. Well, that's the problem. They have a cushy and job. And a pension. They're unionized government bureaucrats with pensions and all sorts of civil service protection. Much better pensions that they receive in the private sector. Absolutely. That's why they stay. That's why we, we've also uh, thought about term limits for government bureaucrats, so they can't just be permanent bureaucracy. No, nah, that would be a mess. Well, okay, that might be a mess, but that's what we want. But the I would import- just eliminate their their ability to collectively bargain. Well, that that was not that was not allowed in, at the federal level until. But why President hasn't that Kennedy been heard in court in '62? And that, why that hasn't a case like that been heard in court? Because, like he said, the judges have all been kind of indoctrinated to think that's okay. What we need. How is, can taxpayers strike? I against taxpayers. I agree. So for I taxpayer money, that was an executive order issued by uh, Pussy Pussy Jack. Yeah, Kennedy. you can't say that Wussy on the radio. Jack, w- President Wussy Jack Kennedy. Wussy and uh, you can't say the exec- P. The executive order. God, we're not serious be, radio. Be, uh, we're unserious. Absolutely, radio. we're community radio. And and so uh, 
I think that is something that we should consider reversing with an because yeah, but you need a order. case. You need a case no, to no, go no. to the courts. The executive can re- reverse an executive order. In fact, that, that so it question, has to be on the last day of Trump's no, second no, term. No, it doesn't have to be the last day. But right now, there's a question at the Supreme Court whether Trump can reverse the executive order that Obama issued in order to institute DACA protection. How about for presidential directive number nineteen, which he extended? When Obama extended whistleblower protections to there, the intelligence there community. You are. So all these executive orders. That created a Marxist should, police state, for Christ's sake. These executive orders. And look orders at it. These people be, are all using it. Should we, we, it should be able to be withdrawn by the next president. Why you wouldn't would they? Think, why, you would think. You know, well, how about, a, uh, so how about a, a rule that all executive orders only apply to the term in which the president who wrote it is? That's, but that's not the rule. Executive orders. Go on and on. For, uh, For they example, should, they the CIA was established pursuant to executive order. By Truman. Yes. So that can be presumably undone. Wow. And maybe we should look so into there, undoing it. So you, ca- you catch me there. So why wouldn't the Congress vote on a CIA to make well, it permanent? because... A lot of people don't like it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I think Truman just did it. He turned the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, into the CIA. And you, a lot of the problems that are going on with uh, pre- President Trump is having right now are with people in the National Security Council, which was approved by Congress, but it's it's like an extra layer of bureaucracy outside the State Department. I think it's, okay? FBI, I think it's FBI and DIA. Well, DIA was General Flynn, which is actually the good guys. Well, who, look, they just, who, uh, who they just out- busted Kelly and... Uh, Rex right, Tellerman. but Kelly was not in uh, DIA. That's Defense Intelligence Agency. Agency. Kelly was a Marine Corps general, and uh, and and Tillerman was a uh, corporate bureaucrat. That's where Annabelle Mo- Montes did so much damage on behalf of Fidel Castro. Right, but that was National Security Council, which is all directly. Annabelle was DIA. Right. No, well, was she really? Oh, okay. Yes. No, but that but that that was a different issue. That was. I think you should start coming with an, a shirt other than your Stanford shirt, and perhaps you wouldn't be so lefty. I'm not lefty, but uh, the DIA, this uh, now under Michael Flynn. In other words, there's two concrete conservatives well. here, but your concrete is still wet. It was just no, poured. No. Yeah, Michael Flynn was the the general in charge of DIA now, and he had a very clear idea about the Islamic threat. Absolutely. And so that's why all the other bureaucrats were either active Muslims or were trying to cover it up, and uh, that's why they ganged up on him. But now he has a very good counsel, Sidney Powell. And they seem to be on the on the verge of uh, striking back. And meanwhile, uh, yeah, I think Flynn will be found innocent, and his his charges will be dropped. Uh, now, what are we going to do with Kelly now that he's running all the uh, holding cells for children on the border? That's pretty cool how he showed up. He's, General Kelly. General he's Kelly. Gone. Yes, and he his new job is a board yeah. member of the organization who won the contract for. The housing facilities on the, on many of the border, I don't want to call them penitentiaries because that's the language of the left, but the holding facilities holding for facilities. children that are separated from their parents. If they're really the parents, because that's another question. A lot of those are Well, fake, either way, they're separated from their parents, fake, whether their parents children. are on the border with them or their parents well, are in... See, that's part of the revolving door of people going from government to government contractors. And you see how the Mormons crossed the border into uh, Arizona? They did that in the 1890s. They're going to be... No, I'm talking about returning... Back to the states because of the oh massive. yeah no they they got to get out of there absolutely I mean Mexico is a very violent place just when we were going to invite Romney to go over there to hang out with them in Mexico absolutely. stay over there absolutely run for president of Mexico 
Romney could be doing that, yes. He, should, uh, he probably does have dual citizenship. No one ever no, discussed No, no, that was his, uh, I think his grandfather had no, been his part the father. of that. His father had been part of that colony. Uh, wait a minute, his grandfather and his father uh, both were part of the, the commune. His father came back early enough to rise to the top of American Motors, so he must have been American for quite some time. No, no. Because Romney's father was president of AMC. Okay. And I think he started off as... Probably, uh, I think he was a machinist, and I think he rose through labor, so that's where Romney gets his Pinko Nation uh, bonafides. Well, we don't know that. I don't know that for sure, but if you start talking and you promise to talk it to the next caller, I mm-hmm. can research what Romney's father actually did before he became president of AMC, because Romney mm-hmm. claimed that uh, he you know, donated all of those shares and inheritance that his father left him. Stuff okay. that we didn't know. There's a lot of decent stuff that Romney did not disclose when he ran for president. You know that. Well, the problem with Romney was he was too cowardly to strike at Obama, and especially in the debates when he had him on the ropes. For in Benghazi. For everything. For everything. Yeah. We, he just uh, was too timid because he didn't want to be beating up the uh, skinny black kid, so he lost. That's, that's well, not the way to do it. Speaking of uh, skinny black kid, I uh, saw an Instagram post today of the good old-fashioned butt-whipping that parents gave their kids when their kids were caught fighting or cheating at school. She she took her little skinny black kid. She got in his face. Where she, was this? It's, it's on Instagram. And I don't know where the hood was, but this black lady was right. I mean, this kid was no more than first grade. I mean, he, All right, well, that's and good. she that was shaking him kids. down like a rag doll saying, I'm so tired of you picking fights here. If this, this lady ever kids. calls me again, it's you and me, bro. It's you and me, Buster. And she said the N-word. Like, to this little kid, I don't know how many times. And the captions below was, finally, we're disciplining our kids again. That's good. So then I did the dirty deed of speaking the entire time. All right. That shows you who's a harder concrete conservative. WSQF Blink Radio, the concrete conservative hour with marvelous Ed Vidal and Mr. Mac on the Rock, 94.5. Who do I have a pleasure to speak with? Zari Varga with the Institute for Justice. How are you, Ari? I'm doing well. How are you, gentlemen? Great. Well, Thank you, you have, for calling. Do you have any, any big uh, victories to report since our last call? Uh, well, the Indiana Supreme Court uh, recently issued its decision in Timms, Indiana. So Tyson Timms is one step closer to getting his, uh, his, his vehicle back, as, as loyal listeners might remember. This was a case that was in front of the United States Supreme Court about a year ago, um, where the, uh, the court held that the uh, excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment does apply to the states. It was an incorporation issue, and then they sent it back down to the Indiana Supreme Court. All right, incorporation. Whether or not the, uh, the penalty of losing one's Range Rover was excessive for the crime of selling a small amount of drugs. Um, and so, was he convicted? Uh, he was not convicted. I don't believe he was even charged. Oh, then no way. Do you think that affected? The, you think that the affected the positive outcome in the case? The fact that he wasn't uh, charged. Uh, generally, yes. I mean, that's the big distinction between civil forfeiture and criminal forfeiture. Um, in criminal cases, uh, you know, a car or a house can be seized because it's considered to be an instrumentality of the crime. With civil forfeiture. Um, no nexus really even needs to be present. You don't need to be charged with a crime, much less a convicted of one, in order for the government to seize your property. So, um, you know, 
we're trying to end civil forfeiture yep. generally, uh, and this is just one step close to that ultimate goal. Yeah, I don't see a point, a, a basis for civil forfeiture if you haven't done anything that you've been convicted for. How can the state just decide that they're going to come after your property? Well, the idea behind it, not surprisingly, was you know this is how we're going to we're going to separate criminals from the spoils of their crimes. Oh. Um, you know, we're going to take Lamborghinis from drug kingpins and things like that. No. But this, this won't surprise you uh, to learn that the overwhelming majority of civil forfeiture cases involve very small amounts of money. Uh, with cash, I believe the average amount is under $400. Um, and with, with cars and other property, they're not going after drug kingpins. This isn't El Chapo, uh, you know, who, who lost his Range Rover. It's a regular guy um, who had a little bit of a rough patch in his life and has turned things around. And and, and now he just wants to get his car back. He was never even charged with anything. All right, good. Well, thank you for getting that done. Now, let me, I was telling Manny that you guys are recently gotten into this whole question of uh, taxation through citation. Mm-hmm. What's that about? Um, it's, a, it's a term that we've kind of coined to describe any activity where the government is fining people not to stop bad acts, but really... Um, with the overall objective of padding their own revenue. Um, governments all over the country, big towns and small, but frequently in small towns, are, are a little bit cash-strapped. And one of the ways, other than taxation, that they generate revenue is through fines and fees. Typically, people are okay with governments doing some degree of fining because the theory behind it is that, hey, you know, you were speeding or you did something that was dangerous and you put society at risk. And so you're going to have to pay 150 bucks or something along those lines. It's much different um, when governments are looking for reasons to go after people because they need the money. Um, and in the instance of the report that we put out called Citation by Taxation, um, I'm sorry, Taxation by Citation, um, some of these cities are raising 25 to 30% of their overall revenue um, by, uh, by, by fining people, and that's, that's quite excessive. Now, is this where uh, cops get uh, quotas of tickets that they have to give? Um, quota systems are a little bit different, and they're okay. generally unconstitutional, but this is very similar in that you're forcing police or code enforcement not to just punish bad actors, but to go out and to essentially create problems so that they can find people for them. So they're supplementing their tax revenues, not raising taxes, but supplementing them through citations of alleged violations sure and in some instances i would say supplementing is too weak of a word um frequently what you're seeing is governments that are that, that could not exist were it not for the money that they're ra- raising through these type of revenue generation schemes they're treating their their citizens as walking atms um and they're financing entire departments uh by writing tickets for ridiculous things like peeling paint and cracks in a driveway and so on. It's it's quite a pernicious practice. Yeah, what, that's, that that's, how, that's Coral Gables. Well, is that? Yeah, right. They'll, they'll where, find you for a fa- uh, house that's faded. Where is that happening? Where? Coral Gables? Well, we're, we're seeing it more and more. Um, you know, one of the first cases that we brought uh, was in Pagedale, Missouri, which is uh, right outside of St. Louis. Um, mm. The Department of Justice ended up coming in and writing an entire report about the city of Pagedale's, uh, you know, policing. Um, it happens a lot, not not exclusively, but it happens a lot in smaller towns right. or, or places.
places that are a little bit more poor demographically because the money that they're raising in property taxes generally is not as high as in bigger cities. So Coral Gables is, is a good example, but they're doing it largely because they have a certain community aesthetic that they want to maintain. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's completely legitimate business for government to be in either. But I, I don't think that Coral Gables is doing it because they need the money. I think they're doing it because they're, they're jerks who, who want to make sure everybody's got perfect grass and hedges. They don't want to become like the southwest side of Miami. That's just the, Sorry? They, they just want to keep their, their exclusivity. Now, going back to Missouri, is that is that town near Ferguson, Missouri? Yes, it is. Okay, so because I remember reading that the uh, Justice Department went over some of those small towns, and they yeah. were, yeah, they were uh, kind of uh, overcharging their residents. They sure were, and I mean, not not justifying anything that happened in Ferguson, but it, it goes a long way in explaining why the relationship between the citizenry and the police was so frayed there uh, that it led to, you know, essentially riots um, in the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly. You know, that's not excusable, but it, 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 this type of behavior, wherever it is, um, generally leaves people feeling a, a, a little bit um, betrayed by their local governments. Because here you think you're, you're doing it right, you're trying to maintain your property, you're doing the best you can, and then in comes the government and tells you that you owe 2000 5000 50000 for petty violations because they've got to figure out new ways to keep the lights on. All right. So when they, when the governments lose these revenues, what uh, departments are being cut? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of just an accounting issue that the governments have to deal with. But when it comes to what pays for what, one of the biggest problems that we're seeing is that the code enforcement departments themselves are financing and funding their operations okay. through the citations and fines that they're collecting. So it creates a really perverse profit incentive where you have people basically paying their own salaries based on the amount of fines that they're collecting. Yep, that certainly creates a wrong incentive. So yep. they're just supporting themselves by uh, preying on the, the local citizens. Mm -hmm. And in some of the places where this is happening, I mean, Coral Gables, as you mentioned, uh, tends to be a more affluent area, but yep. when, I mean, very few people just have a thousand bucks laying around that they're happy to hand over to their government. Um, but where, yep. where this is happening frequently in, in poorer neighborhoods, um, this type of behavior can ruin people's lives, and it does. We see it every day. It's, it's really problematic, and it's something that the Institute for Justice is now taking very, very seriously every time we see it. Okay, so you, so you say Missouri and Florida are two of the places that are, we're seeing a lot of this. All right, good. I mean, I, this happens everywhere. Okay. Um, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens in all 50 states. Okay, so um, because it's such an easy uh, cash generator for mm -hmm. governments, um, and you know, not for nothing, governments and elected officials are aware that people like their taxes to be low, and so they get right. creative uh, to try to come up with new ways to generate revenue that aren't uh, sort of under the umbrella of typical taxation schemes. Right. So and I think I, like I, come up. I think last week I read about a case in Michigan where uh, a homeowner owed like eight dollars. In eight eight forty one or something, and the county actually repossessed the home, sold it, and kept the excess. Yeah, and, I'm, and, I'm familiar with the case. That's that's a, a tax lien sale, right? Um, you, you see, you see a lot of this stuff. What's notable about that case, and I think what unifies a lot of these cases, 
um, is that this was a power that was granted to government in a time of crisis. Uh, Michigan was one of the places that was really, really badly hurt in the Great Recession, um, you know, about 10 years ago. Okay. And additional powers were granted to government because they had a lot of vacant properties. They had a lot of, you know, tax debts. People were in arrears. It was a really bad situation. Um, and so government, you know, created this additional power for itself to be able to, to, to move properties along and to, to collect on unpaid tax debts because people were just walking away from their houses. Um, same thing in, like, Dunedin, Florida, which is another case that I'm working on that I think I've spoken with you guys yep. about in the past. Um, you know, writing, writing tickets for tall grass and, and peeling paint was something that became popular when there were a lot of vacant homes, a lot of houses in foreclosure, and a lot of people walking away. Well, that's not really happening anymore. Um, you know, the housing market has, in many respects, completely rebounded, and yet governments are still doing this. Because they got addicted to the revenue stream. Well, and it's as simple as that. As Ram Emanuel said, progressives never miss an opportunity to expand the role of government. It, it does. It does remind you of that quote: "Never let a good crisis go to waste." Right. Is how he put it. Yep. Um, and that's 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 certainly. I don't know if it was intentional on the part of government, but whether intentional well, or not. Right. Um, there are plenty of cities now who are addicted to these revenue streams and, and can't stop themselves. Yeah, see, government grows on the basis of good intentions, and then they're never they're never reined in. They're never you, you never like Reagan said. There's nothing more eternal than a government program. Once it gets going, it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Okay. He also famously said, uh, "the the most feared words in the English language are I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help." Right. Absolutely. So that's something. Now, what is um, what? What do you, t- stepping back and taking some perspective? What? How do you? How are you guys see the administrative state uh, being reined in by litigation like the the kind you're doing? Uh, do you think the judiciary will be able to uh, kind of uh, step back from all the deference they've been giving the administrative state and uh, will take them on? Um, that's sort of a. There's definitely been a push toward that. Uh, we're certainly in favor of any of, of any framework that restores the uh, the constitutionally determined and dictated restraints on government and on the different branches. Um, Justice Gorsuch has written a little bit about this before he was on the on the Supreme Court when he was on the Tenth Circuit, okay. um, and there there have been a lot of cries um, to to sort of uh, rein in the administrative state do away with something known as Chevron deference, um, which which gives executive aid tremendous um, when when it comes to the way judges will interpret whether or not they've exceeded the uh, scope of their authority. And in fact, um, along with a colleague of mine, Dan Albin, uh, I was in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals where uh, now Justice Kavanaugh sat on a panel um, in a case against the IRS. Okay. And uh, along along with two other judges in front of the D.C. Circuit, uh, essentially said that the IRS didn't have the authority to do what it wanted to do, which was create a separate occupational license for tax return preparers. Uh, so that was that was a big success that the oh. Institute for Justice had in that arena, and we hope to have more more successes like that in the future. Well, but you you've illustrated a good example of the problem. A lot of times, the I know I'm more familiar with the SEC, and the SEC promulgates regulations. Uh, they enforce them with their uh, attorneys and prosecutors, and then they'll bring you in front of their administrative law judge, who's not an Article Three judge. He's he's an employee of the SEC. 
So they're legislator, executive, and judiciary all in one. That's right. Um, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine a, a, a more obvious separation of powers problem um, than the one you just articulated. Um, but it happens, I mean, that's, that's kind of how agencies do business. Yep. That's, how, that's how it's come to be known as the fourth branch of government, is the administrative state. Um, and I think in many respects, a lot of this, if not all of it, is unconstitutional. I mean, I think about, I think about two-thirds of our government is unconstitutional, and yet here we have it. So we, we, we fight them one case at a time, um, but it's going to take um, more, uh, I think, in terms of, uh, of big sweeping victories in order to restore you know, the constitutional restraints on government that our founders envisioned. Well, hopefully, though, the, the judiciary is being reshaped in the right direction. I've read that. Um, yeah. What do you think? I know you're not I, partisan. I think, I think time will tell. Um, I, you know, I, I hate putting too much faith in nine people right. um, on the Supreme Court. And, and, you know, it's obviously a deeply politicized process at this point. Um, but, you know, litigation is, is but one way to to uh, accomplish our goals. Right. Um, you know, a more... A better educated electorate also would, you know, be very helpful. Absolutely. Um, you might get into that a little bit with Bill Maddox after I'm off the phone with you in a couple minutes here. But, yep. uh, you know, I, a little bit of education, I think, would go a long way, too. Yes, we're, we're, we're hoping on that, but uh, it's going to take a while. But meanwhile, there are 158 new federal judges, including six new federal judges on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm. So, uh, so, you know, you're going to have... Uh, I think you're going to start seeing a change. Uh, wh- what about, for example, these national injunctions? Do you guys have a view on that what, a, a, from a federal district court? Um, we, we, we don't really. Um, they're, they're getting a lot more airplay these days. People are starting to learn about them and know what they are. Um, we don't really take a stance on it. I think I, what well, I think is going to ultimately happen. I think these are going to fall out of favor because uh, as, as time goes on, people are going to start to realize um, how problematic it is to have these things hanging over their heads. Um, sometimes they don't even know about them, and they dictate your conduct. So um, I, I hope that uh, that these injunctions uh, are are a thing of the past soon. What? Okay, so you you think uh, the judge? You think the judges will just stop issuing them, or you think the an appellate court will strike them down, or maybe the the Congress will do something? Well, I, I think people will stop seeking them. I I think that's one possibility. Okay. Well, we hope that uh, they're able to do that. Uh, what about uh, when you guys are very big on takings and uh, and uh, fighting eminent domain abuse? So where is where is that field going? Because I know after uh, Kilo versus City of New Britain, there was a lot of uh, state st- uh, statutes passed uh, opposing or requiring that uh, eminent domain be used for a public purpose. Do you think that's the corner has been turned on that issue? Um, you know, uh, Kilo v. v New London was a that was an Institute for Justice case, um, and. The outcome of that, although we unfortunately lost the legal battle at the U.S. Supreme Court, um, by now I think about 46 states have enacted some degree of eminent domain reform, um, most of which were aimed at either just making it harder to do um, or to require a much more clear public purpose 
um, because as, as you might know, the, the public use requirement was essentially read out of the Constitution right. by the courts in the Kelo case. I mean, if you can, if you can take someone's property um, to give it to another private entity under the auspices that they're maybe going to create some sort of economic benefit to the community, whether or not that's even concrete, um, you know, that, yeah. that, that essentially completely eroded the public use requirement. So um, yep. the Institute for Justice worked really, really hard to, to get some reforms in place. We're still seeing different types of abuses um, on property, but, you know, one of the things that we're concerned about is, although the power to take property has been limited to some degree by some of these post-Kilo reforms, the appetite to take property is never going to go away. Right. So governments are just getting a little bit more creative. One of the things that we're, that we're starting to see and that I, that I think has been uh, on the uptick since post-Kilo reforms were put in place is the use of abusive code enforcement. We can't kick people out of their houses anymore, right. so we're just going to make it really, really inhospitable for them um, until they owe so much that they've got to sell. Okay, that that makes sense. What about the argument that uh, well, that's kind of wait a minute. What do you mean it makes sense? That's Marxist. No, I know that. That's why you should uh, we should try to avoid uh, fight that. Yeah. But what about the argument that some uh, some regulation is so overbearing that it constitutes a taking? I mean, that's, that's called a regulatory taking. It's yep. been recognized by the court um, for decades. Um, but, you know, proving that and winning on that is actually quite difficult. Right. Um, essentially, in order for you to, to prove that that's occurred, you have to be able to walk into court and show that you've essentially lost, you know, all economic value of your property. You can't do anything with it. Um, and that's incredibly difficult to, to do. Yep. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much for the call. We thank always you, Ari. we always appreciate when you when you give us a a sense of uh, righteous freedom. And stay away from <laughs> Coral Gables. My pleasure, gentlemen. Take care. Thank you. Well, I I tell you, man, if it wasn't for these organizations, I don't know what would become of us because a lot of the stuff we cry about, we really can't take it to the second base because you know we don't have the case, and uh, all you can do is contribute to these people. Yeah, absolutely. That's the Institute for Justice and also the New Civil Liberty Alliance. They're so look them up, because that's what we're here for. We're here to support the cause. They're libertarian and conservative uh, public interest law firms. So what you were going to spend on the ACLU, please. Yeah, the ACLU doesn't do this anymore. They become part of the progressive uh, state, in effect. The Bolsheviks. Well, because that's because a lot of the leftists use... The progressive groups, especially in the environmental area, they use they they collude with the administrative state because they both want more regulation. Absolutely. So it's it's the libertarian litigators that are driving back the administrative state. The progressive uh, groups, interest groups, litigation groups are actually colluding with. And a lot of times, for example, uh, the Justice Department under Holder, a lot of the uh, when when they won some cases against corporations, they would. Uh, have find them, and then some of the fines would go to the uh, private uh, public interest, uh, progressive public interest law firms that were suing. So 
it's a it's a, a real. I would be surprised that the people in the government are actually recruiting those on the Absolutely, outside. Hey, file true. a lawsuit against us. They're both progressives, right? And then they collude. They collude to, to clarify the law so that we have get make more it rights. Worse, and then and find uh, companies that are doing whatever. So so it yeah. goes back to saying that we closed down the government during a budget impasse well, and sent thirty percent. Absolutely. Now here's what we got. Now do. wait we, a second. I wait. I'm, yeah, I, okay. I, gotta, I gotta get gravitas from you because. You know, we just started doing this for, uh, it seems like, five years now. But aren't you coming around to the idea that what you thought was really provocative uh, coming out of my freedom of speech is actually very what, reasonable and plausible? That? What's that? The, 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 you're starting to come around to slowly understanding that the fiscals have got it down. In what area? In every area. No, but the, what? In this particular case. What's that? Where... The only reason, the only way to shrink the size of government is to shut it down. Oh, absolutely! And bring it back seventy percent. Well, at the efficient. next government shutdown, thirty percent have to go home. You know, Permanently, non-essential personnel just terminate them. I, I, I probably could, we could probably just save. Not only do you save the payroll, not only do you save in all the laws that these people are supposedly enforcing. The second would be. But you save save on just on copy paper alone. Yeah. Well, I think we definitely are due for some civil service reform at the federal there and state level. There you go again. The fiscals so, don't talk reform. Well, okay, so the first step is reduce their number. Like, look at this dweeb now, the State Department official. Yeah. She's asked to testify. Okay, reduce their number. Number two, and this is something I've seen in the last week, disperse them. Send them out. Like, if you're... In the energy industry? No, I'm talking about unemployment. Well, that's number one. I agree with that. Second, send the Department of Energy to Houston. You know what you could do is give a tax break to the corporations who take on a poor federal bureaucrat. No, no, no. They'll find a job. Don't worry. They'll be fine. There's a smart education. Give them a tax break for one year so there isn't too much of a shock to the poor D.C. unemployment line. Well, okay. And then real estate uh, in D.C., Plummets? No, it's impossible. That's what we got to do. But so reduce their number, disperse them around the country so they're not all I was told today, for instance, Yep. that a friend of mine's restaurant in D.C. sells a restaurant. Right. And I, felicidades, for those, for the person who knows that they own the restaurant, $8 million. There you go. A year in a restaurant. This is the Concrete Conservative, WSQF, 94.5. You're here with Ed Vidal, and I guess I'm, the, I'm not going to be, you're not going to be victorious anymore. Sure. I'm going to be victorious, Mac. How can I help you? And you are live on the air. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, this is Jim Callender calling in. Kim, how are you? How are you doing, Jim? Good. How are you doing today? Thank well, you, for- you know, I'm kind of still disappointed and uh, that... You got you hot shots don't care about education. Well, we have a uh, Bill Maddox is calling. Uh, we'll be calling. You know, guys, I have a soft spot that. for kids that, you know, since I have a student kids, I really have a hot spot for. I mean, a soft spot for people like me that you know flunked <laughs> yeah. out of high school and stuff. You know. Well, you well, can't can't blame them. Education is obviously very important, and uh, you know uh, the lawmakers uh, sometimes they do the right thing, sometimes they don't. So we got to be on top and make sure that they're doing the right thing. Well, thanks for calling, Jim. Our first two callers had to do with the administrative state, and they deal with federal and state uh, issues. But one important issue that the state of Florida has to get 
uh, handle on is uh, litigation reform. Florida is is rated as one of the worst states for litigation uh, and issues. And I know that there's some uh, strong efforts to uh, reform the local litigation system, uh, including uh, there's a whole question of litigation finance now, where we have firms that are financing other people's litigation. So why don't you tell us, give us an update on what's going on in Tallahassee on that. Yeah, you know, Ed, and you're absolutely right. Florida ranks, uh, I think, 48th out of 50 states as far as uh, the number of uh, lawsuits. Um, And, you know, the legislature, you know, it's not that they haven't tried over the years. You know, they've passed some good legislation to, you know, put some constraints on uh, runaway lawsuits. But what's been happening over the last 20 years is the Supreme Court, has been um, basically legislating from the bench. And so when the legislature, the people's representatives, have been passing some good legislation the last 20 years, uh, the Supreme Court uh, has been striking it down. And as a result, you know, we're one of the worst states in the country uh, as far as frivolous lawsuits. Um, So, you know, right now there's a a very strong appetite in the legislature, uh, leadership, the House, Senate, and the governor are working hard to uh, reform uh, lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits, and now we have a Supreme Court that is going to uphold the Constitution, and they will not uh, litigate or they will not legislate from the bench. So, you know, I think uh, over the next couple of years we'll see some uh, good legislation pass and not get struck by, by the Supreme Court, and then uh, hopefully Florida is going to no longer be at the bottom of the pack. Uh, as far as frivolous lawsuits, so yeah, I see uh, I see some hope on the horizon. Okay, now I know that we, uh, we uh, Governor uh, DeSantis had three appointments to the Supreme Court, but I've also read that some of those appointments have now been uh, appointed to the federal bench. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. There's been a couple that have been, uh, I guess you could say, promoted. So right. there will be a few more vacancies coming up. Okay, um, but I'm pretty confident that uh, the governor is going to seek out. Uh, folks that will uphold the Constitution and, uh, and like I said, not legislate from the bench. So I, I, I expect him to uh, fill those vacancies with uh, a few more good folks. Now, what what is the principal lobbying effort of your firm? What do you all concentrate on so the audience gets a, a, an idea of uh, what is it that well, you spend most of your time lobbying for? Well, and, and, and we don't lobby. Our firm, we, we do not lobby. Um, so we do uh, basically public relations, uh, political consulting. Uh, we do some corporate consulting. Um, so you know we will uh, we'll, we'll be asked um, to you know look at certain issues that might be coming to Florida uh, in the form of uh, legislation. Uh, then we will you know kind of assess the lay of the land, uh, we will try to identify, uh, you know, those folks that would be allies on the issue and those that would be opposed to the issue. Um, and then we will just uh, basically educate and inform. And then if uh, some legislation actually does get filed, um, then those folks will know what's what's happening and they'll be ready to respond. And if they want to lobby, they can go ahead and do that. But we don't do the lobbying. And as far as what issues that we get into, um, I mean, really, it's across the board. Um, you know, you're very interested in the education stuff, and, you know, Ed wants to talk today a little bit about, um, 
you know, some of the litigation reform that's upcoming here in Florida. So we kind of touch uh, a little bit on everything. And then we also have uh, what I would call our political clients. And those are folks that we basically manage and consult on their campaigns, uh, whether they're running for federal office or for state office. Well, you're running a campaign down here in the 26th Congressional District. Can you can you tell us about that and how it's going? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, Ed. <laughs> Um, I, you're not the one doing it. Yeah. I don't handle our political clients. I work more with our, our corporate clients, but I know we have a very good candidate down there. Her name is arena. Um, she's a great, great candidate. Uh, her family, uh, owns a number of restaurants. Uh, her family came from Cuba, um, got pushed off by Castro and they came to this country. Nothing. Right. What's that? Las yeah. Vegas Cuban cuisine. Yeah, yep. yeah, we know, of... we're familiar with Arena Villa Arino. Yes. Yeah, and, and she's a, a success story. Her family. I mean, they they start with nothing, and they're the American success story where they started up a restaurant, and now they have a handful of restaurants uh, around the Miami area, and they're doing very well, and they're employing people and paying taxes, so can't get any better than that. That is as Republican as it comes. And they're yep. not living off the welfare, which is another requirement that uh, the Trump administration proposed. Actually, it was a reinstatement of a requirement and that a federal court has struck down for now. That you mm-hmm. cannot become a, if you're an immigrant, you cannot become a public charge. Hmm. That's an issue. Well, how about if you are, are kids of immigrants? Because I was just thinking. No, of... no, you can't do it either, Manny. You get sent back. Jeez. So yeah. I, I could be born here, and I can't get Absolutely. on welfare? We're gotta, we got to expand that. I was thinking of going on welfare just to see Absolutely. what it's like. No, then you get sent back. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. It's just, I, 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 So in other words, a person like me who stands in the middle, gets in the, uh, in the grass, actually does the dirty deed on behalf of all Florida uh, residents in the, in the education sphere, I don't stand a chance of getting anybody to do any kind of work because I did everything I could, spent 50 grand, and, and got my back turned on me, but unless I'm involved with some kind of advocacy group or special interest group, I, I would get no attention from anybody. And this is what I didn't want to get involved in. I didn't want to be, I wanted to be a standalone parent who was abused and a daughter who was abused. And, and I was hoping that the merits of what we went through was enough to change this law. But I can see that all my Republicans, all they want to do is, uh, you know, defend charter school developers of which I had to turn my back on one. My brother. brother was a charter school. Yeah. Developer. So it was, you know, he has several charter schools, and he was uh, basically an uh, uh, an associate of Jeb Bush's and everything. So this is very personal to me. I took a lot of hits to do this, and yet mm-hmm. I can't really go anywhere. I mean, I watched Jeb Bush growing up uh, with my brother in business, and it was very personal to have to turn my back on both of them. And uh, so I'm, uh, I love to cuss in, on the air, but I'm really uh, a fat guy out of water here. I just don't stand a chance. This has been a long time. Nobody wants to, nobody cares enough. And it's, so what would you suggest I do as my political consultant? In stereo, well, by the way. You know, man, you're passionate on this issue, obviously. And um, you know, I can tell you uh, in, in the process, in the political process, um, it's, it's rare that, you know, we, we get exactly what we want. I mean, there's just a lot of turning parts. So you have, you know, 120 members in the House, 40 in the Senate. Everybody has different opinions, Republican, Democrat. Um, and, you know, you have to convince a lot of people that, 
you know, what you think is the right thing to do is the right thing to do. Um, but you just got to hang in there. It takes a long time. You know, it, it's, you know, building relationships. The way this process works is, you know, building those relationships and... Uh, yeah, but, uh, but you're, it's kind of an unreasonable request because building relationship is also raising money. And, and I'm a one-man store. There's only, I mean, I definitely couldn't spread my wings enough to support all these candidates to just turn their heads one day and say, you know what? Teachers shouldn't vote against parents in a parent empowerment law, and therefore that's it. I mean, that's the problem with the support. When you say support, it's not just say hi and buy and write nice letters to them. You know what that means. It means bundle money, get them elected. And uh, I can't spread my wings that 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 wide. And I did that. Believe me, uh, we're a family of you know prominent Republicans. We definitely have been in the in the mix just to keep the embargo in place. So I know what it what raising money is like. And, uh, you know, it's just, but it's just, for me to remain one man standing, which is the only place I could be when you think about it, because, you know, everybody came at me all at once, the school board, the PTA, the parents, everybody just came after me. And it was part of a larger project that I felt I was successful at, which was building our high school out here, because it was part of a big, kind of a conversion to charter that I did, that I, I explained to you, was actually the threat in order to get a school built on our barrier island that, that is on the way to Key Biscayne. I don't know if you're familiar with Key Biscayne, but we have a causeway from Miami out to the Key, but there's mm-hmm. a, there's a barrier island called Virginia Key that has no residents. It just has the aquarium and and uh, the water and sewer department. A couple of restaurants. Yeah, some restaurants, you know, a marina. But mm-hmm. they, they built us a high school there because I was coming fast and furious on them with a threat of a K-12 through conversion to charter on the island. So... Mm-hmm. That was built, and it was ruined by putting several grades in there. They put 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. So that's a magnet school, right? It's a magnet school, but it was 9 through 12, and now it's uh, uh, K through 12, and it's uh, now it's uh, overcrowded, just like the, the K-8 center was. And our school never got uh, demolished as I wanted, the one that's inside a municipality. And that's the one that I, I attempted to convert to charter. But it was the first time anybody had used that Florida empowerment law so I wanted to establish a legal precedent to be able to show my Republicans this law sucks. And it was written by, it was promulgated, I should say, by Charlie Crist. And it was terrible. I mean, how can you call something a parent empowerment law? And when you apply it, it's a teacher empowerment law because they have veto power over the parents. That, that's the saddest thing. And that's so un-American, it's not even funny. And, that's, you know, it's just on the merits I mean, it, since 2013, I was pounding away at this, and now I'm at 19, and I'm saying to myself, you know, I'm going to start reacting like all the other parents. Hey, my kid is on his way out. She's a senior in that very school, and as soon as she graduates, you know, what keeps me, what keeps my mojo going when everybody's turned their backs on me? And it looks like uh, Governor Scott wasn't going to do anything, and now I have Ron, who... I think I'm one of the early people to encourage him to uh, run for governor instead of the Senate because I knew Marco would come back into the race. I remember having a long conversation with him over dinner back in uh, March and again in July of 2016. And I could have sworn he was going to do this from the pulpit because that's what I need. I need it done well, from the pulpit. You talk to Richard Corcoran. He's the education commissioner. Well, guess right? what? He's pro-charter developer. Mm. And uh, he wasn't very happy when I, when I got into his face because I don't really... You know, I, I come fast and furious. You can imagine me, if you know me from just my email and speaking to me today, imagine me in Tallahassee crossing the street, getting in people's faces as they're, they're leaving their bars or they're on, on the way from meetings, and I just recognize them and dart across the street. And 
I remember uh, Democratic uh, Senate, uh, what's the minority senator uh, pro tempore, right? Uh, is that what they're called? Senate? The president in the minority is, if you're not president, yeah. it's called pro tempore, right? Well, you you have minority leader, but you have a the Senate president and the president pro tem. Yeah, that's it. Senator pro tem. Um, Mumford was his name. I believe he's still in the in the legislature. Man, yeah, he didn't. Mumford is a minority leader. Okay, sorry. So he was minority leader. I think he was back then in 2013, and he was an ex superintendent. So here I had Senate president, which was uh, Don Gates, Matt's Matt Gates's father. And these, mm-hmm. both these guys were sabotaging me because they were superintendents. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I don't. Uh, uh, un- unfortunately, for the for the people of Florida, the the loss is th- is theirs. If they don't want to change this law, we'll never take back our schools, and we will we'll we'll never ask, be. We'll ask Bill Maddox what the chances are for school choice. He's no, remember, it's next. not school choice. It is parent choice. It's parent guardianship school. In other words, the difference between what I'm proposing, simply because it's already law, the amendment uh, basically is very different from charter because you're not paying rent for the buildings you just took back by election. And a charter developer charges rent when he builds you a building and the parents have to make it work, right? Well, here, you just got to win the election and then you get the school building. Yeah. And that's And that's really annoying because the law says conversion to charter. I have to Get rid of the word charter too, because it's not a charter. It's a you know you you have to pass. You have to get a, a covenant pass, which is of course called charter. But the truth is the dynamics, the business dynamics. No marketing budget because the kids are already there. The teachers keep their pensions. They decide where they want to stay with the parents after the election. They're not voting these elections, so they are free to leave. And if they stay, they keep their pensions. They stay in the Florida uh, retirement system. I mean, it's the end-all, be-all for the entire nation's public school system, and it would spread like wildfire. And nobody's passionate enough to talk uh, to do it here in Florida when it's the only state that has it. I mean, come on, it's really a atrocious a human uh, bankruptcy, intellectual bankruptcy. It's a really saddest thing, and I can only blame everybody but myself. <laughs> it really is amazing that we are in this. We're in this together. We know that the left is winning in every particular way. To give you an idea how upsetting it is, Jim, um, I got so upset with losing my freedom of speech in the process because they wouldn't even let me explain what I was proposing. In other words, I fired the trigger letter. The vote's coming in 90 days. I'm PTA president, and they don't even let me talk on campus. So I got my freedom of speech taken from me, and I, like Irina, came from uh, my parents came to this country so that I wouldn't lose it. And guess what? I built a radio station to buy my freedom of speech back. I mean, think about it. That's how personal it was. This station is here. This, the only good thing that came out of this charter school conversion uh, malarkey was this radio station that, that I just won a. I applied for an FCC lottery to buy my freedom of speech back. All right, so we're going to have to work out a legislative strategy to uh, to try to amend the Florida Parent and Enti- uh, Empowerment Act so that well, the hint, 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 don't, hint, Jim, hint, like pro bono, Jim. Vote. The teachers don't, shouldn't vote. You know, next time you guys have a, an executive meeting, just throw it out there. See what these people say. Front line. Get in the front line. Isn't it called front line strategies? Get in yeah, the fr- we are. And uh, maybe you and I should have a, a conversation offline here and see yep. if uh, we yeah. can shake the, shake the bush a little bit and make something happen. All let, right. me, let me go to your office and make a presentation. I'll, yeah, there he goes. I'll have you guys crying. 
Yeah, you have to oh, walk to Tallahassee. Oh, have you guys actually feeling tears? Like you know, You'll I'll drive get, up to Tallahassee. I would do anything. I really would. The, 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 the two times I was up there, they wouldn't let me speak before the education committee. It was it was my own Republicans who blocked me, Mike Baleka. All right. Well, uh, I I gave I, I gave you, you my Jim. crying story, so uh, that's yeah, the best I could did, do. Yeah, Manny. Let's t- let's uh, let's let's set up a phone call sometime. You bet. Thank All you. Right. Thank you for your time. Love to do hey. that. Yeah, you bet, Manny. You're passionate about this issue, and uh, let's see what we can do about it. Thank let's, you. Let's just kill the left by taking away their books and their schools. Plain All and right. simple. <laughs> school. They take away their books and their school buildings. What more do you want? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. All right, man. Fight the good fight. Bye, bye. Yeah, there what's 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 really uh, interesting is there. Here go for an instance. Look, a Republican retirement, which I'm thrilled that he's gone. Mr. King from New York is the worst kind of Republican there is. Uh, another thirty are retiring from the Republican House. Well, there's some good people coming up, so I'm not too worried about. Yeah, uh huh. Sure. I know in in Texas, uh-huh. for example, congressional district number seven. Yeah. John Culberson lost. Uh, and Lizzie Fennell, Democrat, won. So, but there's some very good Republicans in the primary. So I'm I, I'm encouraged. I think it's good to, to see term limits are good. You get rid of this, these old uh, bulls that are kind of complacent. Peter King, I think, is one of them. And you get some young, enthusiastic people that want to make a difference. So so much is lost. Good. So so much yeah, is lost in it. the equation. No. You, no, you're right. Something is lost, but some Hello, of the lost is good. How about jumbo, jungle, jungle, jumbo primary? That's, that's the result of term a, limits. That, no, that came no. to be because one party got control. You're asking your term limits provoked one party rule, and guess what? Nah. We almost got a we we've had dominance because of term limits. There's dominance right now in the Republican Party. We didn't have we didn't even have majority since Reconstruction, I think it was. Term limits is a disaster. Nah, nah, because nah. people That's the most popular uh, reform that the convention And you know states. that everybody's thinking alike, no one's thinking. Yeah, how well, many generals? Well, how the many? other thing we need is term limits uh, in the civil service. We're talking about civil service reform, reduce their I numbers. I can accept, I can accept a 20-year term limit at the Supreme Court, and that's it. Right. Yeah, that's, well, 20 that's years, the sort of thing. Because yeah. I think they're going to be demented. There's no reason why Ginsburg should be sitting there right. sick and, and uh, and since I have a familiarity. I guess they could be reappointed, for example. No. Well, they, yeah. At their age, bro, their brain is dead. I mean, Ginsburg's not age. sharp. It depends what age. She's turning around and signing off for staffers. Appointed, if they're appointed at 40 or 42, and they're 62 when they come up, they could be reappointed. I mean, it's, if they're there for to, 20 years and they haven't, the if they president. haven't had an impact on my it's behalf, who appointed president. it, it's up to the president then, and and then the Senate to confirm. But anyway, that those are three things. Civil service reform is needed. Reduce their numbers, and you're right. Next time there's a work stoppage. Fire all the non-essential personnel. Absolutely. Disperse them out of Washington. You can send them a little note, a pink slip, right. like way before the budget impasse. No, no. Hey, no. start and selling your property. The the Put the sign out. You're targeted on for On the day of the government shutdown, say to all the non-essential personnel that don't have start to Start renting. In, stay home. And then disperse them around the country. you're going to get a check afterwards because of your collective bargaining. You're well, going to get maybe, a payout. Maybe. Yeah, okay. That's fine. So disperse them around the country. There was a big uproar at the Department of Agriculture because they sent some of their people to Kansas City to be closer to the farmers. Well, that's a good thing. And maybe some of them will quit because they don't want to make the move. Another good thing. Uh, And then term limits. But the main thing we have to recognize about our civil service is that these are not 
nonpartisan technicians and experts, technocrats. They are not impartial. They are partisans. They are progressive, militant partisans. Would you agree with that, Manny? I would like to call them just simple statists. Well, they're sta- that's right. Their ideology is statist, collectivist, totalitarian. They believe government is a person. Yes. They, well, they believe government is a good thing, not a, bad, a necessary it's evil. It's an opiate. Everybody knows it. The well, founders it's, it's all a they job. Do it's a unionized job. I mean, it's just a look at the Constitution itself. Hello, folks. The Constitution's a negative document. They were so frightened to even have to create a document simply because... They wanted to maintain the freedoms that they were enjoying, and they went to war and bled, and they pledged their sacred honor and their fortunes. But they, even when they, even when they were in the jubilee of victory, they wrote a very negative document. Right, and the Bill of Rights reinforced that. Yeah, yes. and then they had to look how cruddy government is. That even when the South loses the Civil War, the North has to not only select renegade senators. I mean, uh, evict or how do you you expel? Yep. Uh, lose, uh, renegade seller because they weren't in the union had to join the union. Uh, yeah, yeah, they had to yeah. get rid of those guys. Right, and then they they passed three amendments to okay. free blacks. It wasn't mm-hmm. good to have the thirteenth. No, they had to pass the fourteenth, well, and the they had to pass the fifteenth. Slavery, and then the thirteenth was to make sure they had their rights uh, returned or not returned. But uh, fifteen is voting rights. Okay, but all those th- all those I three agree. was for on yep. behalf of African Americans. Yep. And that tells you that government sucks, because even war and bloodshed and victory still wasn't enough to make uh, slavery uh, uh, abolished. You had to actually went through the rigor mortis reality of, you know, the joint session of Congress, pass it, send it to the states, and pass it among how many states back then? I don't remember the number. Yeah, it was only in the 20s, right? Probably more. A little bit more in the in the in the yeah. Civil War. There were eleven secessions, so there were probably like thirty states. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that was pretty cool. Much bigger, than, uh, much much larger nation than I thought. Still didn't have a lot of population though. Just a lot. It of states. included California and uh, Texas and Florida. What went on in California during the Civil War? Were there skirmishes or no? No, there there wasn't. Uh, Just any binoculars war. looking back this way. The furthest west was there was a campaign in New Mexico. Uh, the Texan Confederates uh, invaded New Mexico from El Paso, and the federal troops uh, pretty much held them off. Uh, oh, they were outnumbered, and then uh, Union troops from Colorado, volunteers from Colorado, miners came down to New Mexico and helped drive back the Confederates. So Kit Carson was involved in that, but it was kind of indecisive. Kit Carson was a famous... Uh, scout, army scout. He was uh, very fluent in Indian languages and also Spanish. I'll be there. Yeah. He that was, means he was a Romeo. I, Do you have that part of the story, man? I don't know about that part of the story. But Come was, on, Kit Carson, involved. the that man with the... He's got to be a ladies' man. That's as far west as the... Um, Civil War went. So who's our next caller now? Uh, well, we're going to have Bill Maddox, and he is one of the leading uh, experts on school choice in Florida. So hopefully you can You want to bet? The day after the election uh, in here in, in Florida where uh, Ron DeSantis was elected, he had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And the op-ed was how he calculated that I think approximately 40,000. Single 000, African-American moms right, pro-school choice made the they difference. They voted for DeSantis. And they made the difference. Gillum said he was going to end school choice. 
I remember reading it. I and remember so you sending it to me. Yes. A key, that was a key point. That So really, DeSantis it, it got elected because of his stance on school choice. And why isn't he at the podium? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask Mr. Maddox. Mr. Maddox. No, no, no. Don't, it, Mr. I'm going to hear you. Is a researcher. He's not necessarily. Uh, a, it's his a fault too. Hmm? It's his fault as much as it's your fault. Yes, absolutely. And it's DeSantis' fault. There you it's go. It's everybody's fault, but my daughter and I. All of you guys. Absolutely. Stay. So hopefully, uh, we'll see what he has. Every to say. single person who has a child or getting ready to give birth, if you don't amend this law, it's your fault. It's your fault. Well, I, think I no. I before you used to not be able to say that. What? Why? Because no one had ever used the law. Right. Well, the problem with the law, as I see it, is that it requires that the teachers uh, vote. And that is separately. The, not that they vote is that such an no, issue. No, but you, you would never have the teachers vote with the, the parents. There are well, two they, classes. They, Only the parents should vote. Okay. That's it. At the, uh, I'll let you know a little bit of metamorphosis. Originally, we thought erroneously. That it was easier to just change the and to or, meaning win either one yeah, of these no, two elections. Forget it. Get rid of the teachers. Yeah. Which was no harm, no foul, because you know what? You win either one of these two elections, and that's fine. The problem is that turned out to be wrong only because the animus of the losing party the next school year. What do you mean? Teachers losing to, to parents. Parents oh, forget the teachers don't belong in that kind of thing. And vice versa, if the teachers won and the parents no. No, no, no. Forget then it. Then the animus would be g- the almost. Teacher, now, in your case, though, you didn't even win the parents. I didn't win the parents. How, how do you? What do you attribute that to? Total intimidation. Imagine they make their PTA president by resign whom? by the teachers union, and the PTA came after me. Really? You killed the messenger. You mean the the national PTA or the state Miami PTA? Day. The county PTA. I'm sure they were sent by the national, but yeah, the, the Miami-Dade claimed that I was doing a political campaign against the bylaws of the PTA. And the, and well, the, maybe you were. And what's wrong I with was that? Not, it was not a political campaign. My number one purpose clause, clause D of the first section of the PTA bylaw says, we, we have an obligation as PTA president to defend safe schoolhouses. Yep. 1853, I believe. Okay. It was written in there, and it stayed all this time. Guess what they changed recently? What? Purpose Clause D. What did they change it to? Not safety in school. A conducive environment for uh, quality of quality and safety and security of the schools. Good. So you were doing what you were doing was within that. It wasn't a political campaign. I wasn't right. supporting a candidate in any way. Um, that's what that. That's what that purpose clause meant was. I, as PTA president, could not support someone for the school board. The the PTA has been captured by the teachers' union. Not captured. They always were. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Before there were teachers' union, there was a PTA. They they grew together. And their number one— The teachers' unions were—for example, in Chicago, the the Chicago Teachers' Union was founded in the late 1930s with mm -hmm. the National Labor Relations Act— but they would not become the sole bargaining agent until 1965 or 67. And as, I, as we were talking, in 62, Kennedy allowed federal bureaucrats to unionize. In 59, Wisconsin was the first state to start allowing uh, government bureaucrats to unionize. So State, it, state employees. State employees, right. And then so the feds came along in 62, and, and so that kind of caused a lot of other places, other states, other municipalities— to allow 
the unions that had been formed in the 30s. I'm sure them, it was very popular. Yeah. Everybody thinking alike, no one's thinking. Yep, no one's thinking. And ah, really, term limits, reminder. Really since the 60s that the Chicago Teachers Union has declined. I went there in, from 66 to 70, and it was I had excellent teachers. I mean, some of them were not very hardworking, but my math teacher, my English teacher, my I don't sixth think, grade I teacher. I don't think I'm even criticizing uh, teachers, per se. I'm criticizing... Their indoctrination. Well, even even good teachers get ground down by the bureaucracy. That's what my I my think sister get, teaches. I think more than more than anything uh, more than anything else, teachers because of their stability in their jobs or or security of their job. Right. They're one of the few professions, government professions, where they'll. Mo- uh, I would like to do a study to make sure I'm saying is correct. I would say that the, uh, more than fifty percent of them own their homes. Yeah, well, that's my sister. My sister is so really afraid to go against to lose the mortgage and all at the Chicago public schools, and uh, her husband just retired as a principal. So, but she was against the uh, the teacher strike. Let's see if Bill is calling in. This is WSQF Blink Radio ninety four point five, the Concrete Conservative. My name is Mac, and I'm here with Ed Vidal. Who am I speaking with? This is William Maddox of the James Madison Institute. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Uh, We were just saying what a distinguished researcher and educational choice here in Florida you are. And we remember you from the uh, day after the election of Governor DeSantis. You published uh, a very uh, interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, it was uh, an important um, bit of research that I was able to help call call attention to. It showed that um, Governor DeSantis really owed his election to uh, 100,000 African-American school choice moms, uh, black women who um, unexpectedly voted for the Republican candidate over a um, black Democrat, uh, Andrew Gillum, uh, in large part because Governor DeSantis had promised to uh, preserve and expand existing school choice programs that their kids were benefiting from, where, um, whereas Andrew Gillum had uh, threatened to um, cut back on those very same programs. So what has Governor DeSantis done to uh, comply with that promise? So The Hope uh, Scholarship. He's expanded the Hope major, Scholarship. Major uh, priorities coming out of the gate in um, the early part of this year, right after he took office, was to um, uh, encourage the legislature to adopt a family empowerment scholarship um, this provided um, opportunities to some 18,000 students that were stuck on waiting lists, hoping to get um, an opportunity to go to a school of their choice. Um, it, it basically removed that backlog and enabled those um, students to choose to go to a private school, um, including faith-based schools, if they so uh, wanted. And so this was an immediate, um, aggressive, bold action on the part of the governor to signal um, not just to those um, African-American school choice moms, but to all Floridians that he um, intended to make school choice a priority and that he was going to follow through on the promises that he had made on the campaign trail. Uh, I agree. That's a good point. Now, let me let me point out another one, see what your thoughts on that. Um, in the past, the Supreme Court in Florida has ruled against some of the school choice options. 
And DeSantis uh, appointed three new members of the Supreme Court. I think one or two of them may be getting promotions to the federal bench. But uh, do you think that the uh, Florida Supreme Court in the future will be more friendly to uh, school choice? It's a great question, and I do think that that is likely to happen. Um, You're absolutely right that some of the work that Governor Jeff Bush had championed back when he was governor um, ended up getting struck down by the Florida Supreme Court, and three of the liberal members of that court um, were um, uh, up, you know, had to retire due to age, um, um, and their uh, positions had to be filled then by the new governor. So that narrow margin of victory that Governor DeSantis had, thanks in large part to these African-American school choice moms, ended up not only in resulting in the, the Family Empowerment Scholarship proposal that I mentioned earlier, but it also, as you correctly noted, um, gave DeSantis the opportunity to name three new justices. All three of those justices are widely believed to be friendlier to the sorts of ideas that Governor DeSantis is championing, including school choice. And so, whereas before, um, the courts were hostile to many of the things that we um, believed in, I think we now have a much more favorable court, and I think for that reason, it's quite likely that if this new program is challenged by the teachers' unions or others, that the Florida Supreme Court will ultimately uphold it and say that it is um, kosher uh, according to uh, the Florida Constitution, and I think that will bode well for the future for Florida students. Now, uh, Mr. Maddox, uh, would you be interested in an idea that would accelerate school choice throughout all 50 states, including Florida? Actually, start with it, Florida. It would actually start with Florida. Yeah, no, I, I'm always looking for ideas. We work uh, cooperatively with a number of other states, many of whom um, uh, look in some ways with envy upon us here in Florida because Florida has managed to move the ball further down the field than just about anyone else when it comes to expanding school choice. But I'm always open to new ideas and looking for ways to expand choice uh, beyond uh, what currently exists. Okay. Are you familiar with Florida's parent empowerment law that was passed in 1996 and promulgated in Okay, so um, let's let's just take this back a bit. What you're saying, uh, quite frankly, is not 
accurate. I'm the okay. first. I'm, I, I want you to really tune in to what I'm saying because it's probably the most important <laughs> school choice thing you've ever heard. Okay. I'm the first person to use the law. I created the legal precedent for it in 2013. It does not require a school to be failing. Right. It simply requires two persons, either on a, um, an advisory board, PTA, just two parents, a parent and a teacher, any combination thereof, and you fire a trigger letter, and in 90 days, they got to call the vote. Of course, they control the ballot and the ballot language and the mailings, which, of course, I want to change, too, because you don't have the mailing list of the very parents you're soliciting as a parent proponent. What's really sad about the law, and this is why I'm engaging in you, and this is the reason why this radio station exists, because I lost my freedom of speech in doing this, so this station permitted me to buy my freedom of speech back because I lost it for a mile, so I bought it back for 10 miles the American way. So, so this station actually exists because of this law. Because of right. the, I need someone to voice as loud as you could because I have a personal relationship with Ron DeSantis as well as I had one with Governor Scott. And all the Republicans are complete cowards on this issue because they know of me since 2013. And, of course, I've been standing alone this whole time. I've also had a charter school developer brother, so obviously I burned that bridge as well. Uh, it's very important that the law be uh, uh, amended, as I suggest on my website that I've had up since 2014, where the teachers are not in the the position of providing veto power to the elections. The law is written in such a disgusting manner that the teachers have veto power over the yeah. parents. The, they have to win both elections. The law requires that, the first of all, there, it doesn't have to be a failing school, but that the petitioner win the election of teachers, two elections. And, two, uh, teachers and parents voting separately In each as boxes. a class. So uh, what Mac is su uh, suggesting is that the teachers should not be allowed to vote. It should just be the parents. That's the uh Well, it's also got basis. The basis for that is a recent... Uh, I call it a civil rights case. It was a federal, just a federal uh, lawsuit on behalf of two principals in Homestead. The case, you can research this, is uh, Fernandez and Cristobal uh, versus the school board of Miami-Dade County. The court found that the two principals did not lose their freedom of speech rights because they were insubordinate. And therefore, they were subordinate to the superintendent. So they were, yeah, yeah. They were, right, they were rightfully expelled from the school with pay. And basically, careers ruined, and but they had pay, so they weren't damaged. So there, that's the case. That's the law case that I'm hedging my bets on uh, to uh, fortify the the position or or galvanize the position that yeah, but that, case that is, principals do are not yeah, stakeholders. No, principals are subject to whatever the superintendent. But that's not does. my so, point. My point is that politicians have made the case that. Teachers and administrators are stakeholders because they have. No, they're uh, not. They're not because it, of this case. It should just be the parents. Yes, you can't be a stakeholder in something what and not have. What do you think of that, Bill? What do you think of the the, the Florida uh, parent uh, trigger law? Yeah, it's amended? called the conversion to charter law that I I would like to change and remove charter from this because the business model of charter, as I know very uh, accurately, considering my brother does this for a living, that they. That the parents who win the charter, who get it a charter approved, the covenant basically, they have to pay rent to a developer who builds them a facility. So, in the case of conversion to charter and the, under the present statute, guess what? You win the election, you don't have to pay rent for the school buildings. That changes everything. So, I want to rebrand it as the parent guardianship school. 
and I will, I will hope. What do, you, what do you think of that, Bill? Have you have you looked into that? So yeah, what you're describing um, is it sounds similar to what has been done in California. No, nope, so, that's petition based. So, so it is no, there are, there are differences as well, and that's I was I was going to say um, the the notion. That, I guess the key idea that you're championing is one that we would have sympathy for, which is that at the end of the day, the most important decision makers in any sort of situation where we're talking about where children should go to school. The, the, the most important decision makers are parents, and they Correct. are the real stakeholders, and they are the ones the only. who ultimately ought to have the, the decision-making power, not subject to veto by a group of teachers or, or a, a failing situation, failing school or whomever it might be. Yes, so philosophically, we would be sympathetic to what you're describing. Okay. Um, the best advice I could probably give you would be to say, you know, um, find a legislative sponsor who is willing to make the kind of changes that you're looking to make in the law. No way. It can't happen. Why is that? Because they've all blocked me. I need a loudspeaker. I need, I need this brought out to the forefront. Me lobbying to get me as a one-man marching band, unless I got them all elected like Donald Trump style, you know, I pay a hundred grand, put everybody in power. Um, I, I used to do that, and I have a, we're a family of, of prominent Republicans who used to do that. In this particular case, uh, it, that's not suffice. Um, I can name the culprits. They've all turned their backs on me, and they're all Republicans. And, and it, this has been going on since 2013. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, had a very intimate uh, relationship with me at one time. I even went to his uh, Madison's his daughter Madison's baptism. Uh, I'm waiting for him to stand on the podium and say it from the from the governor's mansion, but that might not happen. Uh, I, I the evidence is clear: a hundred thousand parents, school choice parents, were the difference in his election. That law has to be changed simply because it's un-American. It's an un-American voting law. You can't have right. that's a closed society law. Yeah. That stuff's right out well, of communist Cuba or North Korea. The, the one thing that I think Bill has really focused on is that the parents are the single stakeholder in deciding where the kids should go. Okay, but that is yeah, that is the obvious point. That is the well, that's we've the been saying point. that for sixty five years. So basically, then what what happens every year in Tallahassee when the legislature meets, or really in many ways before the legislature even convenes in some of the committee meetings and. They won't let me speak. Is, is, is that, you know, all of the folks who agree with us that parents ought to have primary decision-making power in all of these things, compare notes and say, how can we best advance the ball to achieve the goal that we are all working toward? And obviously there are differences of opinion from time to time there cannot, on there cannot, strategy. This is the, so point, this this, is the point I'm trying so to make. Last year, with the family empowerment scholarships, there were folks who wanted to raise the income threshold on that very aggressively, and others who said, no, we need to maintain a focus on lower working and working class, lower income and working class families. And so you'll get differences of, um, you know, differences of opinion based on what strategically makes the most sense going forward. Um, and you know, uh, to me, I don't see why anyone can't have a voice in those kinds of 
discussions and decisions and trying to influence, and it's not just the legislature, um, or for that matter, the governor. I mean, certainly our new education commissioner, Richard Corcoran, plays a very significant role in a lot of these kinds of discussions because in his former role as House Speaker, he was a big champion of school choice, remains a very big and vocal champion of school choice. And so it could very well be that someone like him, you know, becomes convinced that this is the number one best way to advance the ball, and he, you know, goes to the governor and to the legislature and says so. So I mean, it, it, where where the leverage comes or where the case is made, you know, can vary. But my, I, I see no reason why someone who feels as strongly as you do that this is the very best way to advance the ball, I see no reason why you should not have a voice in that you know, conversation, certainly anyone. Well, I, I appreciate your comments. I just, I, uh, you know, I, 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 I agree with your sentiments and I, uh, I agree with everything you said and I, I thank you for uh, the bona fides. But the truth is, I haven't been invited. Uh, Corkin is protecting uh, charter school developers as well as Michael Boleka, as well as Kelly Stargell, John Legg. Don Gates, uh, Carlos Trujillo, who's now the ambassador of American States for Trump. Uh, there's uh, uh, Mr. Oliva, who's now, I believe, the Speaker of the House. And until somebody uh, raises the volume, and I'd be more than happy to speak to anyone once the volume is raised, but it's impossible for me to have the volume raised because I'm a protagonist that had a, a child abused in the process, as well as my freedom of speech denied. And I even went so far as to testify in the Cristobal, Fernandez Cristobal case, and they never heard my testimony because uh, uh, the, the, the trial judge just killed the case right there in, in federal court. So I don't know what else to say other than it, it's not what you think it is. And Corkin, who I've never spoken to, so I really won't make any claims about him, but he is uh, he's very protective of the M.O., and the M.O. is to take... Uh, education monies out of the budget to school choice. And of course, now that 20 years have passed, you can imagine the developers are asking for more money, more funding for their charter schools. That's the real, that's where this is heading. There's there's no question that charter schools have flourished in Florida and that the number of charters have grown quite significantly since the early 1990s when the first one I, I believe you know, it, I believe the opposite I believe came, it's, came along but but it's not as though all of the activity on school choice in our state has been focused on charters nor is it the case that everyone who is fighting for school choice you know prioritizes charters over everything else I mean you know private schools uh, religious schools, homeschooling, all of those fit into the equation. And I think what most people are really interested in, first and foremost, at least what they should be interested in, and I sense that this is genuine on the part of the people, at least that I've worked with uh, in the school choice movement, is you know, the priority, first and foremost, should be the student. And, and we should look to parents to guide the decision over where the student would fit best. And that best fit might be at a local district school for which they've been zoned, but it might very well be at a magnet school or a charter school or in a home school or a private school or a, 
you know, uh, some hybrid of some kind, an online class or uh, even a full-time online sort of schooling uh, situation. There are any number of options, and I don't sense that there is a kind of pecking order where only charters somehow get attention. I sense instead that there's a wide degree of openness to any and all options on the part of um, you know, most school choice leaders in Florida. Yes, I, I agree with that. All school choice, all alternative types of learning platforms are all all hands on deck. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. The, the added benefit uh, of these ideas are just simply options. But when you're looking at a society of young kids that are not prepared for tomorrow's jobs, we have to accelerate uh, the, the, the school choice movement. And the best way to accelerate it is to have parents take back school buildings. And the, the beautiful part of parents taking back the administration, because you get funded directly from the state of Florida when you win these elections. And what's really beautiful about it is that you save budget surpluses. So it reduces school bonds over time to, for all property owners who might not have children in public schools. That's probably the most exciting thing about this that's never talked about, which is, in my case, our school had a million eighty-three thousand. That had been overcrowded for about 35 years straight, still is. And we would have renovated, had we won, we would have knocked, we would have knocked down the school, not renovated it. The county renovated it, and now, you know, four teachers have breast cancer, three parents that I know of have breast cancer, one has already died. Uh, the, you know, the asbestos, mercury, and lead that's in these old schools is becomes apparent. Well, with these surpluses, you could prove to other uh, entities in your communities, like a big employer, like a, in our case, maybe Carnival Cruise Lines or Rider Rental, these big corporations that are homed here, they could match you if you show you can save surpluses every year by running the school more efficiently than any county school district. So you can imagine you reap the benefits in the really big school districts because they're, all the schools are overcrowded, therefore they're, they have budget surpluses. So there's so many things that I can honestly say about school choice that is really annoying because how slow it is. Uh, I know that a charter school developer has to find parents that want to leave. They have to have a lot of, you know, generations of kids failing in uh, particular individual children that are, you know, failing in a particular school so that they reach out to a developer to buy them land so that, you know, when they get their charter approved, the, the developer starts breaking ground and all that. The developer himself has to build a school for the entire grade of the as representative, as represented in the charter. Meaning, if it's uh you know K through twelve, K through twelve, it's a K eight, a K five. These buildings have to built be built to the max. But the developer himself doesn't get his money until the kids fill in each each grade, and that's one year at a time. Meaning, you could build a K through five, but you're only going to have the kindergarten. And then next year, you'll have the K and one. And then K2 and then K3, all the way to five. By that time, the developer might be bleeding, you know. And also, some charter schools fail when they're leased in shopping centers or an office building when there isn't a developer building. And what happens, those schools close, which is a mark against school choice, but at least they close. They don't keep on graduating kids that are not ready like like public schools are. They always fail, and they always graduate kids every year. <laughs> you know, it's just that argument. And here's the big one, and I guess what I would be my last comment, because we're about four minutes before the end of our show. The, the, the most, two most important facts are that with the surplus, you could also buy other schools. In the case of Rolette Elementary, 
they fired a trigger letter right after I failed. They picked my brains. They did everything that I said uh, they, they should do. The retiring principal got the teacher's vote. Therefore, I feel like I've done damage to my state now because since it hasn't been amended, the, the, the teacher's voting um, uh, with the parents has now been galvanized by the Roulette Elementary success story because they took back their school. They saved three years' worth of uh, uh, budget surpluses. They were a very expensive school to operate because it was arts and humanity type school with, you know, symphony and orchestra and live acts. And you can imagine the auditoriums and the lights and the cameras and all that. And uh, guess what? They bought, a, they bought a, a school in Manatee County, and now they own two schools. They own the Manatee Elementary and Manatee, Manatee Middle, and they're going after a high school now. So you can see how this could spread across the state of Florida and spread across the United States. And Charter, with all you've said, everything you've mentioned, including homeschooling and all that, it's only 10% of the student population in the United States, and it started in 1979 way too slow yeah no i you won't get any argument from me about the speed of change i would very much like to see um much more rapid change and i recognize that you know one has to be careful that you don't get out over your skis and all the rest but you know as you correctly know we've been at this a long time a lot of these ideas have been tested they've been proven um we we can and should move at a at a faster pace. I think once the Supreme Court rules in a way that kind of gives blessing to any and all options, it should make it a lot easier for expansion on a more rapid pace to occur. But you certainly won't get any argument from me that we have not moved the ball as far as we ideally would have um, over the long time that this idea has been around. Well, one way we can do that, and my final uh, uh, thank you for calling us, is to go to my website, parentguardianshipschool.com. It tells you the whole story. And uh, please find typos if you you so desire. (laughs) Um, It's been up for a long time. It gets hacked 100, 100 times a day. And I'm very proud of the fact that my firewalls have been resistant to that. And it's been, uh, it, it is the answer for what parents have been begging for. They want, they want to be involved in school. This is the way to be involved with the actual budget. And they're free to hire and fire teachers and hire and fire operators and change the textbooks. And let's take their buildings away. So hopefully I, I'll read an article one day that Ed will forward to me that you really took a, a, the, your biggest pen and, and, and did it and, and brought it to the attention of the Florida legislatures because I can only speak out. I can only speak to public audiences. But I, since I'm, I'm a protagonist, it's self-aggrandizement when I actually try to lobby. So right. people immediately start, you know, thinking you're an egomaniac because, you know, your kid was abused. And it's unfortunate, but that's just a harsh reality. I need other people to defend the cause. I already did the hardest part. And I spent 50000 bucks, by the way, because... Superintendent would never have given me the vote had I not had the uh, uh, the elections commission chairman as my attorney. So under well, Bush Gore, under Bush it's Gore, too by bad the way, that you didn't get the parents to vote for you. That's the other thing. Yes, once the once they they came after me and demanded I resign, and they packed the house in the cafeteria on a Monday. They held the election the following Monday. The parents ran for the hills. They were Latin Americans who uh weren't even american citizens actually and uh they ran for the hills you know what the vote was 531 to 31 and the teachers voted 83 nothing 
and one invalid ballot, which was a parent that also had a a teacher that also had a child in the school, voted with the parents and voted no as a teacher, yes as a parent. So that that ballot was invalid. Well, the, the teacher shouldn't have a separate vote. They should. Yeah, they have to be taken out. And hopefully you'll research it and call call the motion. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Let's keep in touch. Uh-huh. Thank Take you. care. Thank you for your time. Yep. Yep. Well, that's the end of our show. Well, there you are. WSQF got... Bleaker Radio is on the air once again with the same old routine. Everybody thinks there's something else that can happen. Everybody, it's like it's like uh, poor people. They want to they want to have savings before they get out on their own and, and open a business. No, my friend, you open a business when you're starving. You don't wait to be in a food line. Okay. That's the end of our show, so take care, my friends. This is the Concrete Conservative, WSQF, Blinker Radio. Stay free, my friend. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube, Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.